Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. Dr. Laura Delazana is a Stanford University instructor. She's an international speaker. She's an executive coach. She works with leaders to achieve their potential and lead teams to breakthrough innovation. She doesn't say this in her bio, but she's really nerdy in the coolest ways. And she's going to like share with us so much stuff that you're going to get excited about when it comes to leadership and trust and what makes a team really bond. She equips leaders with practical tools to elevate performance and shape their culture. She consults, she does custom trainings at really big companies like Google, Facebook, Disney, McKinsey, Uber. Her trainings really elevate skills like leadership effectiveness. Big one that we'll talk about a lot today is psychological safety and team performance. She's authored four books that you can check out, Enhancing Emotional Intelligence, Mindful Leaders, Thrive and Mindful, and her award-winning article on high-performing teams was published in the Harvard Business Review and has had over a million views. She was trained at Harvard, Boston University, and Stanford, and she's super cool and she snow skis. She doesn't put that in her bio. And what's really fun is that she's not heady about all this stuff. When you listen to her, her excitement for what she does and the science behind it comes across. And what it means is that you'll ingest what she's sharing with us way more because her dedication and devotion to it is really legit. So I can't wait for you to meet Dr. Laura Delizana. Dr. Laura Delazana. I like to say doctor because women don't get credit for their doctor. So please let me be a little formal with you, Laura, to start with. Dr. Laura Delazana. I'm A, really excited that you sent an email out to all the folks in my old San Francisco building because I think it's a shame that we worked in the same building for six years and didn't get to meet. But I'm so happy to get to be in dialogue with you around all your research and good work around safety, connection, and mindfulness in the workplace. So welcome. Thank you, Tracy. I'm very happy to be here. And I really admire the, uh, the work that you put out in the world. It's so heartful and so needed always, and especially now in these days. So I just big heartfelt bow of gratitude to you and all of the thousands of people who uh, put forth these efforts to make the world a better place. Thank well, you. I, I really take that in wholeheartedly. I did a little reading on you too, and I wanted to share that some of our best volunteers are also silly trained. Oh, really? Fantastic. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. So that's a great foundation at, through, for those of you, for those that haven't heard of Silly, do you want to explain what Silly is and your affiliation with them? Yeah. Um, Silly stands for S-I-Y-L-I, Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute. Search Inside Yourself is an emotional intelligence program that's mindfulness-based. It was created at Google by Chade Mengtan. He uh, spearheaded this oh, this program years ago, over a decade ago. I met Meng through a conference actually here in San Francisco. I saw him speak and he was up on stage saying that he had this vision to change the world and, and make it a better place and, and to do it through this heartfelt work of emotional intelligence. And I sat in the audience and I said, that, that's what I'm doing, but I don't always lead with. This was um, 2008. And I said, yes. And so I emailed him, not expecting that he would email me back. And I asked him if we could get together for no particular reason, just because we shared this purpose and our vision. Thankfully, he said yes. And uh, we began just meeting over tea, speaking about our vision and the way that we could personally, through our work, make have an impact in the world and be part of the team, which all of your volunteers and yourself and, and just about everyone um, who is probably listening to this um, is part of that team I see who's bringing forth their, their ideas, their heart, their efforts to make the world in some small way a better place. And so that's what this program is. It's created at Google for Google employees at first. And Meng's vision was to outsource it for free, which is not that common for a high tech company to give away their, their intellectual property and their programs that they've spent a lot of time building. But that was his vision and that's what he did. So as the 107th Googler, he uh, used that power and that influence to create a nonprofit called Now Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute. I was one of the first, if not the first, outside teacher from Google and from that institute to begin bringing this program into the workplace at Google, but beyond that as well. So at this point, uh, Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute has trained I don't know how many volunteers or their volunteers are not volunteers. They're, they're often coaches and consultants and speakers who are getting paid for their work um, and providing it free of charge to people, organizations, and public programs worldwide. So this is a program that really uses the, the research, the neuroscience, and these ancient practices to get very practical to help mm -hmm. leaders and professionals and companies like Google, LinkedIn, um, you know, insurance companies. I mean, I've worked in companies all over the world in so many different domains bringing this work because it's very practical and helpful. So that's a little bit about search inside yourself. Well, as I listen to you, you've used the word heart three times now. And you're combining heart and bringing it into places that you don't normally think about bringing heart. And so tell me, 
how this unfolded for you because your background is in real science. So how, how did you, how did this manifest? Thank you for, for asking that. I, I have this belief that um, people in the world, we want real skills. We want to improve our lives in ways that we really care about. We, we want to, um, to feel better, to have true happiness and, and meaningful relationships. We want to be healthy, wealthy, and successful. And so I set out at a very young age with this belief that we could, if we brought ourselves, or the best of ourselves, and we, meaning everyone, enough people brought our strengths and applied them in one direction, and that's in some small way to leave an impact, a positive impact, that the world would be a better place. Mm -hmm. And that that will look different for each person because we all have our unique histories, physiologies, much mm -hmm. less strengths and personalities and preferences of what and how we think and how we work and what our gifts are. But if we brought those forth, that we could transform the world. Mm. But I'm very practical. So, you know, I think about this work as having a positive impact on culture, on society, on driving positive social evolution. But I don't often lead with that. Lead with things that the average person who may be kind of curious about this stuff is certainly open to, but is is really interested in, in the practical sides of life. We all have real challenges, goals, and opportunities. And so my aim has been to provide tools that serve a dual purpose mm. that will make us more successful if we use them, that will drive more effective leadership. And yes, key performance indicators in the bottom line in companies. But the thing is, those skills to be more successful, and even if we're just talking very concretely, even make more money, those are the same skill sets that do drive better relationships, more deeper connection, a greater sense of authenticity, bringing forth our greatest strengths, tapping into our values and our aspirations, and those, those higher the parts of ourselves to, to come together. So I lead with the practical and I became a PhD in psychology because I wanted the science. I started actually in neuroscience. I transferred along the way in my graduate program to, to work with people, but my first work was with rats. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, because I was very interested in what is, the, what is the hardware and then what is the software? What can we change? What does it mean to be human? What's it the, the deep cause of, of our actions? I wanted to understand our physiology so and our, our neuroscience so that we can get very concrete and bridge those two areas of the head and the heart, the practical and the ephemeral. Wow. So there's this wistful dreamer in you that has this bigger vision of social evolution 
but that's not necessarily what you're selling when you go into an organization. You're saying to them, look, you can make more money if you create a real meaningful workplace where people's values and their, you know, best selves and their gifts and better relationships come forward. Is that, is am I kind of getting the essence of that? That's exactly right, Tracy. Um, it's, it, it's this, like I said, the same skill sets. And now more than ever, what I love about this time period in history and the way our societies and businesses are organized is that we need each other now to be successful more than ever. Why so do you say that? Is right. Why? Because we can't succeed alone. Gone are the days where you can just work harder on your, in your, even in your own plot of land. Yeah, then you needed your family, right? My mom was one of, of 14 children. Why did they have 14 children? Because they needed farmhands in North Dakota, right? And so we've always needed each other as, as humans. We're fundamentally social species. Um, much like other mammals, but we, we need each other in order to succeed now because we, we need to specialize, right? There's, uh, we're in a time of specialization. Can't, um, one person isn't going to solve these complex problems. I mean, this term VUCA has become very popular. It started in the, in the military that the, the, business, and the business people have, have uh, co-opted it because it describes the environment of the business world. It describes the world conditions. We are living in a VUCA world where change happens at a volatile, fast-paced, and large level. In the times of, of COVID, we are seeing that this is, hits each of us in our, in our homes, in our personal lives, that change happens rapidly. Mm. Um, there's this sort of ambiguity to the problems. What's the problem? What's the solution? We can't even identify the variables at play, much less find a solution. And the complexity and the... Um, the uncertainty, can, having uh, predictability is, has gone out the window. Mm. So in those types of conditions, the workplace where it's interdependent, we work on teams, we work on cross-functional teams, we work across nations and, and disciplines, even across companies um, in order to solve these big problems, to create these big solutions. Mm. We need each other. So those are the elements of communication, of trust, mm-hmm. of self-awareness and self-responsibility. What's my role in this? How am I contributing to this? And, and along those lines of self-awareness, what are, what's my gift? What's, what's my place on this team? What's my contribution? Mm. Yeah. All right. So I got to backtrack though, because, you know, I'm, I'm a psychotherapist. I used to be in tech, but what is VUCA? VUCA is that V-U-C-A, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, ambiguity, the, mm-hmm. describing the conditions of um, modern of business life. Yeah. yeah. And a world condition. So we need to build our teams then to deal with VUCA. And the way to do that is to equip folks with communication, trust building skills, if you will, and self-awareness and self-responsibility. So you have a lot of experience doing this. I mean, you go into Fortune 500 companies and, and really work with people and probably have learned a lot since you started doing that work. What are the skills that folks most need 
to really deal with modern life in the workplace. And, and I imagine a lot of this applies at home too. Yeah, that's what I love about this work is people are people, whether you're walking in the front door of your home or the front door of your company building, people yeah. are people. Yeah. The same principles, challenges, fears. Although companies reactions. forget that sometimes. <laughs> that's why people like us remind them of it. Yeah. <laughs> and the ones that do remember do better. We, we see that as well. So some of those core skills, you know, first of all, there's no one. Okay. We, we, be so much nicer if we could simplify everything, boil it down to just do this one or just do the top three keys. If it were that simple, we would have figured this stuff out a long time ago. So let's welcome the complexity and bring in um, different dimensions. So starting with the self, know thyself, mm. self-awareness. Who am I? How do I want to show up? What are my strengths? What are my blind spots? Now, by, by definition, blind, we're blind to our blind spots, so we mm -hmm. need each other once again to help give us feedback and to help us illuminate what, what we're not seeing. So self-awareness is one. Then um, that self-management, you know, this is a, emotional intelligence at its core. Self-management, the ability to, to find motivation when you feel um, a little bit taken aside or, or, or to... Um, to know and to respond when you are under stress or not at your best, how to get back to you, essentially. And then it goes into the interpersonal realm, which um, th these are relational skills. And they're difficult. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All of this stuff, there's, there's no end point. There's no, there's no master of this. Uh, this is a direction not a destination. Uh, one of my favorite quotes, Mary Lee Runbeck said, happiness is, a, is not a destination, it's a direction, it's how we travel. And that's true whenever we're dealing with any aspect of life, it's how we show up. So those relational skills, a study that was done, um, popularized at, at Google, uh, found that psychological safety, trust between teams, was the number one driver of Google's highest performing teams compared to average teams. Now, huh. mind you, these are already very high performers, right. right? Their highest performing teams had not technical skills, not expertise, not even um, you know, charismatic leadership or, or things like that. It was trust. We're human. We are fundamentally social animals. Trust was the number one. Also, meaning having a sense that my work matters, that what we're doing matters, also having role clarity. We need to have order and structure and know who's doing what and that you, know, you can have that autonomy because you own it. Those are all pieces to it. Um, and so those interpersonal skills, though, they're so challenging, especially when we have competing agendas, especially when some people aren't going to play fair. How do we respond to that? Uh, you pack your bags and go home. No, we have to stay in the game. But yeah. how do you do that in a yeah. way that's effective, that, that embraces complexity, not simplicity, that doesn't go into shaming and blaming, but instead takes on that sort of energy of like, no, this is not okay with me and we're going to find a way together. So yeah. come along with me because we're going.
Yeah. Not letting this slide. You know, it, it, what's coming to mind is I'm making a link to something that I was studying today because um, I work with a lot of couples and this idea that we're moving from harmony to disharmony and then back to repair many times during the day, but we're often taught that disharmony and repair are signs that it's a bad system. But what I'm actually hearing you say is no, it, there's no shame or blame of the system. Systems are complex. And it almost sounds like you're mimicking this, the same psychologist thinking that there's harmony, disharmony and repair. And that's part of the skill set that people are trying to or need to develop in the workplace. Is that, is that resonating? Absolutely. I mean, I love um, couples work because we're always in a, in, a, in a dynamic, right, with other people. And so there's a lot we can learn from, from couples therapy when we go into any relationship. And so conflict is scary. Conflict is people, you know, back on their heels or, or leading with their fists, so to speak. But conflict is actually so profound. Conflict is a call for curiosity. Mm. Conflict is an opportunity because what it shows us is, wow, we have a difference here. Mm -hmm. I don't actually understand where you're coming from. This is fascinating. I have something to learn. Mm. What I feel a beautiful reframe. Yeah. And then added to that, I feel threatened by this. What is so important to me that I feel threatened by your viewpoint, your perspective, your action, your words? I mean, this is a fascinating inquiry. And to, so to welcome into that the learning, I mean, we would not have conflict if we were all the same. Mm -hmm. And if we were all the same, what would we learn from? How would we create? Creativity requires this sort of um, tension between difference and, and familiarity. So holding this, this yin-yang, this, this dialectic of mm. I want to be on my own and do my own thing and have my own thoughts and I want to learn and grow and be influenced and be in connection. I mean, that it means you're going to have conflict because where there's difference, there's difference. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's necessary. What I'm hearing you say is, it's necessary to be really a really agile, creative unit. Absolutely. We need that sort of diversity of thought. Think about um, across history. So I love to, to travel and um, visit different countries and very different locations and, and peoples than, than what I'm familiar with because I learned so much. And, and one thing I notice when I travel around the world is the ancient trade routes. Think about where the ancient trade routes. So I've been to Petra this last summer. I was um, in Greece with my family. And th these were centers, Angkor Wat. The, those were centers of, of the world at a certain time. They were the power centers. They were the Silicon Valley. They were the Paris. They were the New York. The, you know, these were the, the power centers of ancient times. Why were they the power centers? Why did so much innovation happen in Rome? Why did so much innovation happen, um, you know, in certain parts of China? Because these were, these were trade routes where, in other words, lots of people were passing through. The access to different ideas 
was abundant. Mm. There was diversity of thought. Mm. When we have diversity of thought, we get influenced. We learn, we grow, we learn about our blind spots in our thinking, in our perspectives, in our paradigms. And that's how we innovate by that sort of challenge of, of perspective and learning that happens in, in companies. We need diversity of thought, um, in, in, in teams, we need diversity of thought in our, in our relationships. We need diversity of thought in our, in our romantic relationships, diversity of thought, please. Oh, that's an interesting perspective. I hadn't seen it that way. Huh? And if we can just stay open and listening, your, the whole mission is this sort of connection. Now, I think the most beautiful thing is to bring connection to apparent differences. Wow. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I just have to reflect back. You get so excited talking about this. Like this isn't something that's a platform for you. This sounds, you, you're really passionate about this stuff, aren't you? Oh, yeah. I love this. I mean, I've, I've, I joke about it myself because I see that I'm a little bit obsessed with it, but in a good way. Um, and I, what I mean by that is I care so deeply and I think about it deeply. Um, you know, they say, what do you do in your spare time that might show you your strengths? My spare time, I'm reading nonfiction books or this or that, or, or you know, traveling. When I travel, I, I interview people and I, I was thinking about sidewalk talks and just listening and I, one of the things, uh, another thing I love about tra- traveling is listening to people mm-hmm. that look so different. I was on a trip to India and um, I was on a camel ride through the desert and overnight, and um, it was a camping sort of trip. Is They called it camel safari, northern India. And when we stopped for lunch, you know, we're in the middle of nowhere, nowhere in the middle of the desert. Just me, two other um, Indian tourists and our guide on all each on a camel. And um, so you can imagine this scenario. We stop um, to make our lunch and over a fire that our guide makes and up comes um, a herdsman, an Indian herdsman, local herdsman. He looks like he's about 80 years old, but he tells us through the translation um, of our Indian guide that he walks 16 miles a day moving his cattle from place to place. And so, and he's, you know, he's wearing like this, I don't know what it's called. I'll use a a term that's totally incorrect, but you know, it's sort of like a wrap, like a sarong, like a swami belt sort of thing. And he has, his head is is wrapped in his traditional wear. And, and so I said, wait a minute, this is such an opportunity. Who is this man? So I asked um, through our translator, if I could ask him some questions. And so we sat on the dirt and he said yes. And, and he was joining us for lunch. And, and so we, we sat there and I asked him questions about his life and what he cared about and what happiness means to him. Hmm. And it was so beautiful. And the reason why I bring this up is because this, again, seeing similarity where there's difference. Hmm. So what did you learn? What did you learn when you asked him that? You know, I, I learned the same thing over and over again, and yet it gets more fascinating and more fascinating every time I learn it from a different person. And that is, we're all the same. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all the same. <laughs> what he cares about is his family, is what he's told us. 
and he wears a little um a, a, a little figurine around his neck that he said was his 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 mother's hmm. you know relationships and and connection and he was smiling and laughing and smoking his hand rolled tobacco and stuff as we're sitting around this and I just love the humanness in that and and in all of us no matter who the person is um, that we we have the same hopes, dreams, fears. They just take different forms depending mm. on whether it's um, a, a Silicon Valley CEO um, who people are intimidated by and, and move out of the way and get his or her coffee for them um, to a, a rural Indian herdsman. Mm. What do you find to be the most similar? as you have interviewed people and talked to people and listened to people all over the world, what is, is it, is it relationship or is there, is it this piece that you'd brought up around trust? What is it? Um, you know, I think that there's this, um, this piece within all of us that goes even a tiny bit deeper than that. And that is this feeling of, connection and separateness mm-hmm. connection with ourselves and separateness so that takes the form then connection with the universe out in nature and separateness that sort of um connection with another person and yet separateness this sort of autonomy and and interdependence and navigating that, I think, is very, very sweet and very human. And this sort of, um, you know, life and death, this sort of here, now, and not. I mean, I, I love going to these, um, to these, like, at, at a physics level, you know, these fundamental laws uh, of, of life, mm. togetherness or apart, chaos and order. And so I think that, um, that we yearn for this sense of belonging, for this sense of feeling in connection with ourselves, with others, um, for some people to the, the greater good or, or God or the divine or whatever it might be. And then also this independence, you know, like one of the first le- words we learn as humans is no. And one of the first, you know, what drives what that that um, thriving and the failure to thrive is based on that sense of connection and taking Mm. care of. So this dynamic um, I think is fascinating Mm. and how we, that works within ourselves, our relationships, these things are like fractals. I I, I see them as, and maybe this is getting too philosophical. Um, No, I'm feeling so much in my body as I'm listening to you and you know, what's coming up in me as you start to, paint this picture of belonging and connection and independence. I'm linking it back to some of the other things that you've said in our conversation thus far and how that tension shows up in our work, right? And we bring that tension between both, in some ways, longings that kind of compete with each other at times and that we're not only navigating that inside of ourselves. But then we're navigating that in this complex team. And so it, almost, it wants, makes me want to come back to this really profound thing that's, that won't leave me, 
that you'd said that trust more than charisma and achievement and metrics is is the thing that helps people perform the best. And I, I have to be honest, I had to scratch my head and go, what is trust exactly? So can we go back to that and, and kind of bring along this conversation about belonging and independence and see if we find our way to some link to this thing that you brought up around trust and what is trust and how do we cultivate it and how could it maybe help us navigate this belonging independence conundrum that we're in? Yeah. So I think of it from an evolutionary perspective, again, going back to the basics, going back to the basics, we as humans evolved in a time um, until very, very recently. So for hundreds of thousands of years where we were facing life or death threats on a moment to moment basis, practically. Right. And so the life or death threats were famine, starvation, and certainly animals being prey or predator. And so a sense of security and safety was what determined survival. I mean, real, if you had safety, not a sense of, not an imagination mm. of, if you were physically safe, um, then you had the potential to survive. Now, we weren't going for thriving back then. We were going for survival just long enough to pass on the genes. We have to remember that. So our, um, our modern human and our brain is wired to survive. Thriving is we're also wired to come together and to thrive or else we wouldn't have the capacity to. But first, survive. And so those are the oldest structures in the brain, that type of circuitry that gets activated. So this fight, flight, freeze response is readily activated like hairpin trigger because it's better safe than sorry. Mm. And so the first need really is to have our basic needs met to have enough sustenance to eat to um, not freeze to death or overheat, um, to have, so to have shelter, food, and physical safety from predators or other threats. So we are wired to be so hypervigilant. It feels like hypervigilant th these days, but it's just a, a very highly attuned ability to detect threat, real or imagined. Now, the thing is, we live in these complex, collaborative, interpersonal, interdependent world these days where thankfully, for those of us who have the privilege, are not facing life or death threats on a moment-to-moment, day-to-day basis. So we have this primitive circuitry that fires in an instant, that acts first, thinks second, as the amygdala hijacks our perspective taking the slower thinking part of our moving part of our brain. And so that we can um, escape danger or fight danger. And we bring that into the workplace. The mm -hmm. thing is with this primitive circuitry, the saber toothed tiger is now your boss who works in the door or that co that colleague who slightly annoys you and thinks maybe doesn't have your back. So now we raise up arms against them, mm. but yet they're the very person we need to win over, collaborate, build a sense of connection and, and um, cooperation with. That is not in the domain 
of those so-called negative emotions like fear, anger, anxiety, those are in the domains of the positive, the build in, broaden and build mode of positive emotions, which comes from positive psychology and, and much of the work of Barbara Fredrickson at University of North Carolina. This is the um, build bonds, be safe, friend and, and, and tend part of uh, our, our wiring that is geared for, that was built to collaborate, to create, to bond, to take care of each other, to, um, you know, to inter-knit the, the tribe and create loyalties and bring ideas together, even though they were different, to make peace with, um, with opposing forces and uh, people and tribes. So that's why we call that in the modern day trust where we can predict, where we have a feeling sense. It's both cognitive and emotional. It's conditioning. Do I feel safe with this person? Do I feel I can trust them? This is a complex construct. There's no one answer to that, and there's no one action that will make you trust someone. It's cumulative. Yeah. It's over time. But when we feel, so going back to your initial question, when we feel that sense of safety, we can let down our guard, we can activate those higher brain centers in our, our prefrontal cortex, which is where creativity and, and perspective taking, the long-term thinking, solution building happens. We can feel motivated and excited and not hunkered down, closed down, narrow, which is what some of those other fear or anger or frustration, annoyance will, will put us into a mental state of. So we need the mental state that trust enables. That's the key. It puts us into a mental and physical and openness and physiological state where we can perform at our best. Mm. Very practical. Oh, I, you know, I could just talk to you for like an, another hour about all this stuff. This is so great. So, something I want to reflect back and then ask a, a question about. So what I'm hearing is that when our minds are in sort of their negativity bias, if you will, that we're not going to be the best of collaborators or builders, right? So we may not be as, for example, as good listeners. We may not be as good at connecting. We're going to be more motivated to, to protect ourselves rather than collaborate. Am I getting that right? That's right. Yeah. We hunker down, we protect, we go small, we go narrow. Safe than sorry. We and, get defensive and, and attack. And all of those protection mechanisms do not contribute to trust in organizations or frankly in the world. That's right. I also think about things like inequality. I think about poverty. I think about racial discrimination. Um, Oh God, you could name any number of things where, where somebody doesn't feel like their basic needs like shelter, food, and physical safety are being met. And that impacts them even before they enter the workplace door. Yes. So then- you bring in these perspectives, biases, and therefore expectations, assumptions that will shape and influence the way we interpret even very neutral data. So this may be beyond the scope of this conversation, but at some other time we can talk about it. But I really, then how can the workplace create enough safety for folks that maybe 
outside of the workplace don't already feel safe so that their diversity of thought contributes to the creativity of that environment. I think, you know, politically too, we probably need to hear from folks that are not being served by systems that could help them feel more safe. And yet they may not be so interested in collaborating because they don't feel safe. So it's like this weird catch 22. How can I advocate for my own needs if I'm not even in a frame of mind or a mental state that would allow me to collaborate with you? Yeah. So it means that we need to put a little <laughs> Is that bit a big more one, Laura? I'm sorry. Well, it means that we need to put a little more effort just because we know that we have a negativity bias. All of us got it, no matter our best intentions. We all have a negativity bias. And yeah. We overestimate threat, underestimate resources, and overlook opportunities. We all have it. Therefore, wait, wait, wait. Slow down, slow down. Say that. That was really important what you just said. Okay. The negativity, the negativity bias, this comes from uh, hundreds, maybe thousands of studies, both laboratory and practical applications. It's very clear that the negativity bias is comprised of three tendencies. First, we overestimate threat. I want to see you at two o'clock in my, in my office. Ooh, oh, I'm in trouble. Praise. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. We think, oh my gosh, what did I do wrong? <laughs> um, housing crisis. Oh my gosh, I'm going to lose all my money. You know, we, we go to catastrophe, um, catastrophizing, as psychologists would say, far more easily than, than um, looking for safety signals and realizing that things just might be okay, even though they aren't right now. Mm-hmm. Second tendency is to underestimate resources. We underestimate what we could do. Are we underestimate our own strengths? We underestimate, if I just asked for help, would somebody help me? We underestimate what we could learn, you know, the growth mindset. Um, we go into fixed mindsets. Well, I don't know how now, so I never will. Or, you know, we usually don't say it that extremely, but in effect, those are the assumptions that we're operating under implicitly. The third is that we overlook, this one's the saddest to me, we overlook opportunities. Mm-hmm. We look at over the landscape and we see scarcity, not abundance. We see the holes and the, not the, um, you know, the path. Mm-hmm. And it's very much just like in, in sports. So I'm a, I'm a skier. So I love going down very steep shoots. And, and I know that um, if I'm looking at the rocks, Mm-hmm. Where am I going to go? Towards That's a the very rocks. Place Every time. <laughs> Every time. It doesn't matter the sport, biking, golf, tennis, you know, keep your eye on the ball, keep your eye on where you want to go. So anyway, when we look at, um, we overlook these opportunities that could be there or that we could create and we go into, oh, there's none. So this means that we need to put extra effort to offset that bias just so that we get, we get accurate. I'm not talking running around with you know, a positive viewpoint all the time. You know, do that when it's, um, when it's helpful, when it's useful, and, and when it, it's, it serves uh, a good. Um, but I'm not saying just for the sake of. I'm saying because we need to be accurate first. Mm-hmm. Let's have an accurate interpretation. Mm-hmm. And that means if we're biased, we need to counter that bias. So going back to, well, I feel unsafe out in the world and then I come in and I'm less likely to open up and that's just smart. That means that we need to work with that more. So Mm -hmm. that means that we need to then put more effort into building bridges, into asking for people's input. This is uh, psychological safety and trust is, 
is between every individual, but it, it's created in a culture by saying, this is how we do it around here. We listen to each other. That's why I love what you're doing here. It's, we listen to each other. We're open to other perspectives. I need your ideas because I can't do it alone. No one here can do it alone. We're in territory that we've never been in. No one has the answers. We need your thinking. Mm. So that sense of I need you, interdependence is key. It's also saying, you know what, like if we all agree, we're going to go nowhere here. Your job is to disagree with me. Mm -hmm. Your job is to help me see where I'm wrong mm -hmm. and tell me that. That is what I expect of you. So setting expectations. So in, an, in a personal relationship where, you know, maybe you're not the leader, um, it is showing others that you care about their well-being you may not even like them, but they're part of your team. Yeah. And so we work together around here. I'm going to listen to you. And going back to what is trust? Trust is the, is the answer to a question. This is an evolutionary-based question. And that question is, are you with me or against me? Hmm. This is a beautiful place to kind of put a pin in our conversation because I know we're kind of past the end of our time, but will you just say that one more time? Because I just want to hear, I just feel so good in my bones to have you say that question. Yeah, trust is an evolutionary-based question. Are you with me or against me? Wow, amazing. And I think listening is one of the contributing factors of many to beginning to answer that question. It helps people answer that question when we listen, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's what this is. Listening is, is so simple, not easy. It's so basic, but so profound. Mm -hmm. I yeah. care about what you have to say. I care enough that I'm going to give you my most valuable resource my attention and time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well said. Well, Laura, we're at the point in our podcast where I do something a little unusual. And for those of you that want to learn more, because I think we really only scratched the surface of, you've written so many beautiful books and you have such a passion for this. And I think people are going to kind of get eager to check out more of your stuff. So we will be sure to have that in the show notes, everyone. But Laura, this is where I get out of the way. And most of the folks that listen to our conversation are the very people that listen on sidewalks around the world. And so I invite you to speak directly to them, either a wish or a piece of wisdom. What a beautiful question. My wish and also the call to action is to take a step back, feel into the person who you are, you at your best, feel that positive intention, that part that cares for yourself and others and, and planet and the animals that live on it, whatever resonates for you, feel into that caring part of you and 
move from that for yourself and others. And whenever you feel a contraction, a shutdown, a retreat, that's fine. That's good. Contract and open, contract and open. That's what all living things do in systems. But when you do contract and pull away and go smaller, pause, feel into that deeper part of yourself that cares for yourself and others, and then move from that part of you. What a gift. What a gift. Thank you for all that you do in the world and all the ways that you serve our sort of larger social evolution and for gifting us with your time and attention so much. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to be in this conversation and to be speaking with you again. I so admire and applaud and support what you're doing and going back to why the passion behind this, you know, I think we're, we're in it together and I believe that we can do this. We yeah. can do this if we pull together and if we bring out our best, we help each other to bring out our best. So thank you for being a very strong and powerful force in that good. Thank you. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.